Section number two of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas K. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3 by Julian Hawthorne. Editor, section number two. The Bohemian by Fitzjames O'Brien I was launched into the world when I reached twenty-one, at which epoch I found myself in possession of health, strength, physical beauty, and boundless ambition. I was poor. My father had been an unsuccessful operator in Wall Street, had passed through the various vicissitudes of fortune common to his profession, and ended by being left a widower with barely enough to live upon and to give me a collegiate education. As I was aware of the strenuous exertions he had made to accomplish this last, how he had pinched himself in a thousand ways to endow me with intellectual capital, I immediately felt, on leaving college, the necessity of burdening him no longer. The desire for riches entirely possessed me. I had no dream but wealth. Like those poor wretches, so lately starving on the Darien Isthmus, who used to beguile their hunger with imaginary banquets, I consoled my pangs of present poverty with visions of boundless treasure. A friend of mine, who was paying teller in one of our New York banks, once took me into the vaults when he was engaged in depositing his specie, and as I beheld the golden coins falling in yellow streams from his hands, a strange madness seemed to possess me. I became from that moment a prey to a morbid disorder, which, if we had a psychological pathology, might be classed as the mania arabilis. I literally saw gold, nothing but gold. Walking in the country, my eyes involuntarily sought the ground, as if hoping to pierce the sod and discover some hidden treasure. Coming home late at night... Through the silent New York streets, every stray piece of mud or loose fragment of paper that lay upon the sidewalk was carefully scanned, for, in spite of my better reason, I cherished the vague hope that some time or other I should light upon a splendid treasure, which, for want of a better claimant, would remain mine. It seemed, in short, as if one of those gold gnomes of the Hearts Mountains had taken possession of me, and ruled me like a master. I dreamed such dreams as would cast Sinbad's Valley of Diamonds into the shade. The very sunlight itself never shone upon me, but the wish crossed my brain that I could solidify its splendid beams and coin them into eagles. I was by profession a lawyer, like the rest of my fraternity, I had my little office, a small room on the fourth story in Nassau Street, with a magnificent painted tin labels announcing my rank and title all the way up the stairs. Despite the fact that I had many of these labels fixed to the walls and in every available corner, my legal threshold was virgin. No client gladdened my sight. Many and many a time my heart beat as I heard heavy footsteps ascending the stairs, but the half-dawning hope of employment was speedily crushed. 
They always stopped on the floor below, where a disgusting conveyancer with a large practice had put up his shingle. So I passed day after day alone with my code and blackstone and my chitty, writing articles for the magazines on legal-looking paper, so that in case a client entered, he might imagine I was engaged at my profession, by which I earned a scanty and precarious substance. I was, of course, at this period in love. That a young man should be very ambitious, very poor, and very unhappy, and not in love, would be too glaring a contradiction of the usual course of worldly destinies. I was therefore entirely and hopelessly in love. My life was divided between two passions, the desire of becoming wealthy, and my love for Annie Dean. Annie was an author's daughter. Need I add, after this statement, that she was as poor as myself? This was the only point in my theory of the conquest of wealth on which I contradicted myself. To be consistent, I should have devoted myself to some of those young ladies about whom it is whispered before we are introduced that she will have a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But, though I had made up my mind to devote my life to the acquisition of wealth, and though I verily believe I might have parted with my soul for the same end, I had yet too much of the natural man in my composition to sacrifice my heart. Annie Dean was, however, such a girl as to make this infraction of my theory of life less remarkable. She was indeed marvelously beautiful, not of that insipid style of beauty which one sees in Greek statues and London annuals. Her nose did not form a grand line with her forehead. Her mouth would scarcely have been claimed by Cupid as his bow. But then, her upper lip was so short, and the teeth within so pearly, the brow was so white and full, and the throat so round, slender, and pliant. And when above all this a pair of wondrous dark gray eyes reigned in supreme and tender beauty, I felt that a portion of the wealth of my life had already been acquired in gaining the love of Annie Dean. Our love affair ran as smoothly as if the old adage never existed, probably for the reason that there was no goal in sight, for we were altogether too poor to dream of marriage as yet, and there did not seem very much probability of my achieving the success necessary to the fulfillment of our schemes. Annie's constitutional delicacy, however, was a source of some uneasiness to me. She evidently possessed a very highly strung nervous organization, and was to the extremest degree what might be termed impressionable. The slightest change in the weather affected her strangely. Certain atmospheres appeared to possess an influence over her, for better or for worse. But it was in connection with social instincts, so to speak, that the peculiarities of her organism were so strikingly developed. These instincts, for I cannot call them anything else, guided her altogether in her choice of acquaintance. She was accustomed to declare that, by merely touching a person's hand, she became conscious of liking or aversion. Upon the entrance of certain persons into her room, 
where she was, even if she had never seen them before, her frame would shrink and shiver like a dying flower, and she would not recover until they had left the apartment. For these strange affections she could not herself account, but they, on more than one occasion, were the source of very bitter annoyances to herself and her parents. Well, things were in this state when one day, in the early part of June, I was sitting alone in my little office. The beginning of a story which I was writing lay upon the table. The title was elaborately at the top of the page, but it seemed as if I had stuck in the middle of the second paragraph. In the first, for it was an historical tale after the most approved model, I had described the month, time of day, and the setting sun. In the second, I introduced my three horsemen, who were riding slowly down a hill. The nose of the first and elder horseman, however, upset me. I could not, for the life of me, determine whether it was to be aquiline or Roman. While I was debating this important point, and swaying between a multitude of suggestions, there came a sharp, decisive knock at my door. I think, if the knock had come upon the nose about which I was thinking, or on my own, I should scarcely have been more surprised. "'A client!' I cried to myself. "'Huzzah! The gods have sent, at last, laid on a pipe from Bactylus, for my especial benefit!' In reality, between ourselves, I did not say anything half as good. But the exclamation, as I have written it, will convey some idea of the vague exultation that filled my soul when I heard that knock. "'Come in!' I cried, when I had reached down a chitty and concealed my story under a second-hand brief which I had borrowed from a friend in the profession. "'Come in!' And I arranged myself in a studious and absorbed attitude. The door opened, and my visitor entered. I had a sort of instinct that he was no client from the first moment. Rich men, and who but a rich man goes to law may sometimes be seedy in their attire but it is always a peculiar and respectable seediness the air of wealth is visible i know not by what magic beneath the most threadbare coat you see at a glance that the man who wears it might if he chose, be clad in fine linen. The seediness of the poor man is, on the other hand, equally unmistakable. You seem to discern instantly that his coat is poor from necessity. My visitor, it was easy to perceive, was of this latter class. My hopes of profit sank at the sight of his pale, unshaven face, his old, shapeless boots, his shabby, cosseth hat, his overcoat shining with long wear, which, though buttoned, I could see no longer merited its name, for it was plain that no other coat lurked beneath it. Withal, this man had an air of conscious power as he entered. You could see that he had nothing in his pockets, but then he looked as if he had much in his brain. He saluted me with a sort of careless respect as he entered. 
I bowed in return and offered him the other chair. I had but two. "'Can I do anything for you, sir?' I inquired blandly, still clinging to the hope of clientage. "'Yes,' said he shortly. "'I never make purposeless visits.' "'Hem, if you would be so kind to as to state your case.' for his rudeness rather shook my faith in his poverty. I will give it my best attention. I've no doubt of that, Mr. Cranstone, he replied, for you are as much interested in it as I am. Oh, indeed, I exclaimed, not without some surprise and much interest at this sudden disclosure. Oh, to whom have I the honor of speaking, then? My name is Philip Bran. Bran? Bran? A, a resident of this city? No, I am by birth an Englishman, but I never reside anywhere. Oh, you are a, a commercial agent then, perhaps? I am a bohemian. A what? A bohemian, he replied, coolly removing the papers with which I had concealed my magazine story and glancing over the commencement. You see, my habits are easy. Oh, I see it perfectly, sir, I answered. When I say that I am a bohemian, I do not wish you to understand that I am a zingaro. I don't steal chickens, tell fortunes, or live in a camp. I am a social bohemian, and fly at higher game. But what has all this got to do with me? I asked sharply, for I was not a little provoked at the disappointment I experienced in the fellow's not having turned out to be a client. Much. It is necessary that you should know something about me before you do that which you will do. Oh, I am to do something then. Certainly. Have you read Henry Merger's Scenes de la Vie de Bohème? Uh, yes. Well, then you can comprehend my life. I am clever, learned, witty, and tolerably good-looking. I can write brilliant magazine articles. Here his eye rested contemptuously on my historical tale. I can paint pictures, and what is more, sell the pictures I paint. I can compose songs, make comedies, and captivate women. On my word, sir, you have a choice of professions, I said sarcastically, for the scorn with which the bohemian had eyed my story offended me. That's it, he answered. I don't want a profession. I could make plenty of money if I chose to work. But I don't choose to work. I will never work. I have a contempt for labor. Probably you despise money equally, I replied with a sneer. No, I don't. To acquire money without trouble is the great object of my life, as to acquire it in any way is the great object of yours. And pray, sir, how do you know that I have any such object? I asked in a haughty tone. Oh, I know it. You dream only of wealth. You intend to try and obtain it by industry. You will never succeed. 
Your prophecies, sir, are more dogmatical than, than pleasant. Don't be angry, he replied, smiling at my frowns. You shall be wealthy. We will follow it together. Sublime assurance of this man astounded me. His glance, penetrating and vivid, seemed to pierce into my very heart. A strange and uncontrollable interest in him and his plans filled my heart. I burned to know more. What is your proposal? I asked severely, for a thought at the moment flashed across me that some unlawful scheme might be the aim of this singular being. You need not be alarmed, he answered, as if reading my thoughts. The road I wish to lead you is an honest one. I am too wise a man ever to become a criminal. Well then, Mr. Philip Brann, if you will explain your plans, I shall feel more assured on that point. Well, in the first place, he began crossing his legs and taking a cigar out of a bundle that lay in one of the pigeonholes of my desk. In the first place, you must introduce me to the young lady to whom you are engaged, Miss Annie Dean. Sir, I exclaimed, starting to my feet and quivering with indignation at such a proposal. What do you mean? Do you think it likely that I would introduce to... A young lady, in whom I am interested, a man whom I never saw before today, and who has voluntarily confessed to being a vagabond? Sir, in spite of your universal acquirements, I think Providence forgot to endow you with sense. I'll trouble you for one of those matches. Thank you. So you refuse to introduce me. I knew you would. But I also know that ten minutes from this time you will be very glad to do it. Look at my eyes. The oddity of this request, and the calm assurance with which it was made, were too much for me. In spite of my anger, I burst into a fit of loud laughter. He waited patiently until my mirth had subsided. You need not laugh, he resumed. I am perfectly serious. Look at my eyes attentively, and tell me if you see anything strange in them. At such a proposition from any other man, I should have taken for granted that he was mocking me, and kicked him downstairs. This bohemian, however, had an earnestness of manner that staggered me. I became serious and I did look at his eyes. They were certainly very singular eyes, the most singular eyes I had ever beheld. They were long, gray, and of a very deep hue. Their steadiness was wonderful. They never moved. One might fancy that they were gazing into the depths of one of those Italian lakes on an evening when the waters are so calm as to seem solid. But... It was the interior of these organs, if I may so speak, that was so marvelous. As I gazed, I seemed to behold strange things passing in the deep gray distance which seemed to stretch infinitely away. I could have sworn that I saw figures moving and landscapes wonderfully real. My gaze seemed to be fastened to his by some inscrutable power, and the outer world gradually passing off like a cloud left me literally living in that phantom region which I beheld in those mysterious eyes. I was aroused 
from this curious lethargy by the bohemian's voice it seemed to me at first as if muffled by distance and sounded drowsily in my ear it made a powerful effort and recalled my senses which seemed to be wandering in some far-off place you are more easily affected than i imagined remarked bran as i stared heavily at him with a half stupefied air what have you done what is this lethargy that i feel upon me i stammered out ah you believe now replied bran coldly i thought you would did you observe nothing strange in my eyes yes i saw landscapes and figures and many strange things i almost thought i could distinguish miss miss dean well it is not improbable people can behold whatever they wish in my eyes but will you not explain i no longer doubt the fact that you are possessed of extraordinary powers but i must know more of you why do you wish to be introduced to miss dean listen to me cranstown answered the bohemian placing his hand on my shoulder i do not wish you to enter into any blindfold compact i will explain all my views to you for though i have learned to trust no man i know you cannot avail yourself of any information i may give you without my assistance so much the better said i for then you will not suspect me as you have seen continued the bohemian i possess some remarkable powers the origin the causes of these endowments i do not care to investigate the scientific men of france and germany have wearied themselves in reducing the physiological phenomena of which i am a practical illustration to a system they have failed an arbitrary nomenclature and a few interesting and suggestive experiments made by reichenbach are all the results of years of the intellectual toil of our greatest minds as you will have guessed by this time i am what is vulgarly called a mesmerist i can throw people into trances deaden the nervous susceptibilities and do a thousand things by which if i chose to turn exhibitor i could realize a fortune but while possessing those qualities which exhibit a commonplace superiority of psychical force and which are generally to be found in men of a highly sympathetic organization i yet can boast of unique powers such as i have never known to be granted to another being besides myself what these powers are i have now no need to inform you you will very soon behold them practically illustrated now to come to my object like you i am ambitious but i have unlike you a constitutional objection to labor it's sacrilege to expect men with minds like yours and mine to work why should we who are expressly and evidently created by nature to enjoy why should we with our delicate tastes our refined susceptibilities our highly wrought organizations spend our lives in ministering to the enjoyment of others in short my friend i do not wish to row the boat in the great voyage of life i prefer sitting at the stern 
with purple awnings and ivory couches around me, and my hand upon the golden helm. I wish to achieve fortune at a single stroke. With your assistance, I can do it. You will join me. Well, under certain conditions. I was not yet entirely carried away by the earnest eloquence of this strange being. I will grant what conditions you like, he continued fervently. Above all, I will set your mind at rest by swearing to you, whatever may be my power, never in any way to interfere between you and the young girl whom you love. I will respect her as I would a sister. This last promise cleared away many of my doubts. The history which this man gave of himself, and the calm manner with which he asserted his wondrous power over women, I confess, rendered me somewhat cautious about introducing him to Annie. His air was, however, now so frankly and manly, he seemed to be in, so entirely absorbed by this one idea of wealth, that I had no hesitation in declaring to him that I accepted his strange proposals. Good, he exclaimed. You are, I see, a man of resolution. We shall succeed. I will now let you into my plans. Your fiancée, Miss Annie Dean, is a clairvoyant of the first water. I saw her the other day at the Academy of Design. I stood near her as she examined a picture, and my physiognomical and psychological knowledge enabled me to ascertain beyond a doubt that her organization was the most nervous and sympathetic I had ever met. It is to her pure and piercing instincts that we shall owe our success. Without regarding my gestures of astonishment and alarm, he continued, you must know that this so-called science of mesmerism is in its infancy. Its professors are, for the most part, incapables. Its pupils, credulous fools. As a proof of this, endeavor to recall, if you can, any authentic instance in which this science has been put to any practical use. Have these mesmeric professors and their instruments ever been able to predict or foresee the rise of stocks, the course of political events, the approaches of disaster? Never, my friend, save in the novels of Alexandre Dumont and Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton. The reason of this is very simple. The professors were limited in their power, and the somnambules limited in their susceptibilities when two such people as miss dean and myself labor together everything is possible oh i see you propose to operate in the stocks my dear sir you are mad where is the money bah who said anything about operating in stocks that involves labor and office I can afford neither. No, Cranstown, we will take a shorter road to wealth than that. A few hours' exertion is all we need to make us millionaires. Oh, for heaven's sake, explain. I am wearied with curiosity deferred. It is thus. This island and its vicinity 
abound in concealed treasure much was deposited by the early dutch settlers during their wars with the indians captain kidd and other buccaneers have made numberless caches containing their splendid spoils which a violent death prevented their ever reclaiming poor poe you know who was a bohemian like myself made a story on the tradition but poor fellow he only dug up his treasure on paper there was also a considerable quantity of plate jewels and coin concealed by the inhabitants of new york and the neighborhood during the war with england you may wonder at my asserting this so confidently let it suffice for you that i know it to be so it is my intention to discover some of this treasure end of section two recording by john thomas k www.validateyourlife.com